Hello, this is Drew, a resident of the Montevilla neighborhood and big fan of Academy Theater. I am here, as always, with Doorman, one of the programmers at Academy. And we're going to talk about um, one movie today for a review episode. But first, uh, welcome, Doorman. What's up? Hey, Drew. It's great to be here. And I'm really excited to talk about this movie. This is a movie that I have always wanted to play for people and getting to see the new restoration on the big screen with the room full of people was a dream come true and we probably should say the name of the movie that we are uh <laughs> dancing around uh from 1979 paul schrader's hardcore a controversial subject a brilliant actor a powerful and touching film a movie which will take you into a world never dealt with in a major motion picture. A father searches for his missing daughter, only to find she has been used in a sordid and shocking way. Turn it off! George C. Scott, Hardcore, Rated R. Coming soon to a selected theater near you. I'm not scared to talk about this movie, but um, I just wanted to, you know, ease into it a tiny bit because this is an intense movie um it sounds like you have a lot of built-up excitement for it as um i mentioned in the preview episode uh for this in november um i did not know about this movie i know a decent amount about paul schrader's career have a lot of appreciation for kind of the hard um um cynical i'd say characters that he is known for portraying in in his movies i really love um some of the movies he's done later in his career as well so it was really interesting to go back to this point in his career and um and get some new context so yeah um what else or how do you want to start us into this conversation on hardcore well firstly i I think it's interesting that you uh, just mentioned that you want to kind of softly go into this movie because it does have a bit of an edge to it. And so much so that when I, I was listening to uh, Schrader's commentary, and I thought it was really interesting because he mentioned when he, they were filming in Grand Rapids, um, they did not call the movie hardcore. Oh, uh, They went under the name Pilgrim to not alienate people. And I guess that's, that's a pretty conservative. You're not, no one's going to get upset in Grand Rapids if you're filming Pilgrim. But if you're filming a movie called Hardcore, you know, that's, what is that? Who, yeah. What's going on? It was, that sounds like a bad movie, you know? So that, this, the edge of this movie is real. Um, and the poster, you know, it's, it's a controversial, you know, up-in-your-face movie. Um, but at the same time, it's not a grindhouse movie. So coming from the October deep cut pick with The Boogeyman, where we had a, a low-budget affair, uh, an ambitious low-budget affair, but here we're getting a class picture. We're getting Jack Nietzsche with the soundtrack here. We're getting some real heavy hitters. We got the editor, Tom Rolfe um, from uh, Scorsese Films, um, uh, Michael Chapman, also from Taxi Driver doing cinematography, produced by John Milius, Big Wednesday. So in some ways, this is a confluence of other movies that I've played recently um, and is kind of the logical next step. And it really seemed perfect for November 
not only because of its holiday opening scene. Yeah, which, that totally blindsided me. Which I love. By the way, yeah, yeah. which I totally love. <laughs> um, but also because it was it's a neo noir and it fits in with my uh, noir vember programming um, in a totally different way. Um, but it doesn't have that. Uh, I don't know. I guess again, I would call it the hard boiled nature of some of the other noirs that people are most known for maybe uh the neo-noir version would be like the long goodbye or chinatown some of these more detective um type noirs this is a different this is about the search this is about going through the gritty urban um landscape to try to find some kind of truth yeah so we open on um this is what blindsided me is you know obviously it's a movie called hardcore i knew the hardcore was in reference to um pornographic filmmaking we're eventually gonna like be plunged in to the underbelly of the adult entertainment industry but it starts with cheery christmas music playing a montage of like snow and and christmas decorations and small town life in grand rapids and then kind of like a family get together for christmas dinner where the kids are watching um holiday programming on tv they're having they're carving a turkey like obviously this is setting you up to um contrast where we're going to spend most of the time in um in los angeles but like I had no idea and and the timing of when you showed it at Academy, when Academy showed it is um, right when I was switching my personal programming from, you know, November, um, basically, was it right before Thanksgiving or right? It was was right before. Yeah, it was right before, but it it was that cultural pivot point that we all feel at that time. And it starts off with them snowing, uh, sledding in the snow and, you know, that really great song um precious memories you know and that's juxtaposed against the hardcore logo that goes across in the titles and everything so i love that title sequence precious memories unseen angels sent from somewhere to my soul But just to give our listeners a, a macro picture of what I want to do this episode, sure. I just want to get your feedback on how it was watching this movie for the first time at the Academy. And then I want to talk about a specific chapter in Quentin Tarantino's book, Cinema Speculation, that came out last November um, on the movie. And go into some of his points and see what you think yep. after your initial screening. I've seen this movie many times i i grew up kind of on this movie i saw it in high school this was you know my dad uh uh, showed me taxi driver when i was really young smart so yeah (laughs) yeah, exactly (laughs) and you can kind of tell right Uh, and then uh and so when i was in high school this was like the cool cool taxi driver that nobody talked about um and so when i discovered it it was very very uh sexy to me it was very um exciting um not in a a a sexual way just just um a very like intellectually like oh my gosh i uh, you know i found this underground thing i i see what you mean yeah uh, not titillating necessarily um despite the subject matter but just like cinematically um inspiring for you so 
yeah, I'm going to be careful not to tip my hand on, um, I watched the movie before reading the chapter, of course. Um, and then I had a different reaction, um, than, um, what I would end up reading later. So my initial reaction to the movie was just like, I thought it was really interesting how we spend almost no time with the the daughter character. So she yeah. ends up being um, the instigating force. Her disappearance is what um, sends the main character to on the on the hunt. But then we're just we're just following him the whole time. So I I love movies where we're just kind of like thrust into the POV of a character and then we are on an odyssey with with them. I thought this movie did a really interesting job of capturing a very specific time, like a relic of this um this adult film and porn, uh pornography industry that was like on par with Hollywood filmmaking mm-hmm. but like completely gone by the time that you know like we were consumers with money that could have like <laughs> been you know like the the uh pornography industry had completely been reinvented basically by the time we were born and then reinvented several more times with with the internet and so, i think that, yeah i think you're right that that aging element of the movie how the movie aged, yeah, you know, so quickly, just you know, ten years after it made, it makes it a historically yeah. relevant document that will always be compelling. Yeah. So there, there's something deeply compelling about this movie, in my opinion, that will never go away. But what's also fascinating is there are some interesting components of it that may or may not work. And I think yeah. you're getting to well, your take on that. But I just wanted to point out that, yes, I think it's really upfront and it's important to mention that just the fact that these uh, porn establishments just withered away yeah. basically moments after Schrader came and shot them yeah. is just super amazing to watch. Yeah, exactly. So I didn't have the context cinema, um from a cinematic history standpoint that I would learn from Tarantino's perspective or the context from living through the time period in terms of the realism of how these establishments are being portrayed and maybe kind of like the viewpoint of various characters on what's uh, the, the main characters like puritanical viewpoint on everything is, is fundamental to uh, the, the story in terms of how he is going to assume what his daughter's motives and and whatnot are and and how um, displaced he's going to feel on this journey. But I I wasn't in a position from personal experience um, to like make any judgments on how these things were being portrayed other than how they are in other movies. And so it is just this really interesting time capsule maybe it's not a very not the most accurate time capsule but it's a really um compelling um setting and time period to spend time in and it was really important like from a cinema standpoint this was the the money that was being generated in adult filmmaking was um really meaningful 
and then it would uh you know, launch the careers of other filmmakers or just support the whole Hollywood infrastructure in, in general. Like they're using the same, you know, um, sound stages and they're using the same crew members on lesser, um, lesser uh, jobs. And so it's just like, it was propping up the whole industry and it just was gone then by the time that, you know, I was aware of how the industry worked. So all that's, all that's sort of, behind the scenes stuff just the movie itself um again it's like i'm not evaluating the plot of a movie like this i'm just on the journey through the main character's eyes even if i don't agree with their decision you are like taxi driver you are bolted onto their their pov and it's very persuasive and very effective at making you feel what they're feeling so I think it's fair to say that from your in initial watch, um, just talking about the representation of the sex industry, yeah. it didn't seem like phony baloney, no. which is what Tarantino calls it out to be in his book. Yes. It, it, you, you're getting a sense of a world that was gone before you came of age, right. and you're, you're seeing that world. So from my perspective... Uh, when I've I've watched this movie several times, I thought it was very interesting that Tarantino makes a very big point early on in this chapter to criticize the realism yep. of this movie. So that's this is not a documentary, and this is where no. I, I'm going to pick a little bit on Tarantino here because realism isn't super important in a lot of his movies. No, um, logic is. So he's a very logical guy because he's coming from this writer, and I can see why some of these points that he makes later on in his chapter are not logical. Um, we can get into that and whether logic is really that important to us in our screenings. But realism, I never, even though I knew this world was gone away, I never knew that this movie was anything other than a movie. I knew it was a fictional narrative, and I did not expect... Um, a accurate representation of the sex world. And actually, I would have been really surprised if that movie was really trying to do that because that seems like a particular thing that would really control where your movie was headed. Yep. And that's not what this movie, to me, seems like it is. It is like you were saying. It is thrust through the eyes of George C. Scott. We're seeing the world through Jake Van Dorn. Yep. And we're on his journey. And, I, and that's where I think the movie's heart really is in the journey. Where the bastard runs the shit all. Hey, well, well, what's the problem? He's causing trouble. I got a picture. Now I want you to help me find this woman. I've been asking everybody. Nobody knows anything. Listen, listen, just call, call it, call it. Listen, we don't want the cops in here. Listen, you got a family? I suppose you haven't seen her either. Her name is Christmas. I suppose you've never seen her. Why, why'd you go out there? Shut up. But what I, I think is unignorable here is that we're going on a journey with a conservative guy yeah. through a very unconservative landscape. And Schrader is preying upon that fantasy that lives within our American culture. So that's what I see this movie as, is within the genre of a neo-noir, where there's a guy searching through an urban, gritty society. Yep. Um, but it's part of this other subgroup of, of movies, and I have many of these sort of personalized subgenres, like movies with the scene, where we talked about Blue Velvet and Deliverance. 
this is a different, this is a nightmare subgenre, which is kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where Toby Hooper there, he is taking advantage of this inherent fear of the South that basically everybody, even people in the South, have. Right. There's this weird, illogical, just fear that we have in deliverance. Same thing. If we, if we Northern folks just go down in the South, we're going to get cornholed just like yeah. in deliverance. And this is the same sort of nightmare cinema that Schrader is diving into that for some reason, I think Tarantino just kind of missed. I don't well, know if he, uh, he I yeah. think he's being protective of the misportrayal of this industry in the service of like morality. So turning, oh, totally having the, his nightmare scenario be validated by the movie might undermine sort of the complicated relationship we do have with being thrust into this conservative perspective. Because, I feel like people in the yeah. South might feel the same way about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, another movie I put in this camp is Straw Dogs by Sam Peckinpah. This is another movie that's extremely taking advantage of this inherent, and in that case, um, it's about a academic who is not able to defend his wife Right. against you i don't know if you're familiar with yeah it. yeah it, totally so and uh i guess our if our listeners aren't it's about an academic guy who's unable to defend his wife against the advances of blue collar local townsmen um and again these are archetypes that are just put in this cinematic nightmare blender and whether or not i agree with you whether or not it is in service of morality or the right thing to do for that group of people it's representing is another question altogether but I made no, and, and from my initial perspective on this movie, I'm from the Midwest, and I knew exactly what this movie was doing. It was taking my conservative Midwest relatives and putting them in uh-huh. the most extreme nightmare world situation that they would ever want to be in. Yeah. Well, so what the movie does, where I agree with Tarantino, is maybe the more complicated, interesting version of this story yeah. is one where he ends up not not being as validated so she's we don't get exposed to this whole like snuff film side of the industry which was probably way overblown in its representation in movies than real life you know assuming that happened period it's been overrepresented in movies in terms of like adult filmmaking transitioning into snuff filmmaking that is probably an unfair characterization of the adult film industry. Absolutely. And, but is it yeah. a logical extension of the Midwest conservative nightmare? nightmare? Absolutely. Yeah, fair. So to me, that is exactly, if you're making a movie that is about the Midwest nightmare, it goes to snuff film. Yeah. If you're making a documentary about what hardcore porn was like before the video era, you would make a point to mention all these shitty hollywood movies that exploited it and made snuff film part of it that wasn't even really there and every movie for obvious reason is uh, the most the logical conclusion of the most extreme version of a situation it's not gonna like if yeah unless it's going for kind of like all like before sunrise type of realism usually there's gonna be like a big conflict between the couple before they reunite like that, absolutely that, that is not like an everyday occurrence it's a once in a lifetime occurrence turn it off 
I want to say, though, what's so interesting about this movie and the way the daughter character is portrayed yep. is we don't know any of her motives the whole movie. And I think what, again, what Tarantino is disappointed in the movie by is the fact that by the end, we, we do sort of learn that she wasn't... He, he overstates, I think, what we know and like as if it's definitive and it's portrayal on screen we we can definitely assume that she wasn't kidnapped drugged and forced against her will into the adult film industry we can't rule out that she was some of those things and coerced and she's young and and vulnerable but we can assume that she had some agency i guess in running away and staying away and and that's really interesting because we only learn about that like we only can infer that we don't actually see it we don't see her really in the movie at all and so the fact that the movie doesn't go all the way by having the dad have to really reckon with the fact that she wanted to stay away and wanted and chose this for herself and then she does end up kind of it does sort of have a happy hollywood ending to some degree i think that's where tarantino is disappointed that it didn't have the conviction to stick with that. You just of, hit it, yeah. you, Drew. You just hit upon it. The the fact that on the surface level we're getting the happy Hollywood ending, but in reality, he hasn't recogni- recognized right. the true reason for her running away, and she doesn't hasn't reckoned with it either. And so that problem is going to persist. So to me, it is a better ending than uh, Schrader even knows. I mean, Hmm. so they talk about the original ending in the commentary and in this. um, And um, I can see why they changed it because it's not super satisfying. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, (laughs) I, I, and this was on multiple watches. So the original ending was he learns that she gets killed in a car accident, completely unrelated to porn. And right. That's wah, it. And, wah, wah. Well, to me, that is a classic. That's Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. That's Scarecrow. Hmm. That is, that is the classic downbeat, cynical yeah. '70s senseless death ending that Tarantino identifies in this book and other chapters. And I'm trying to say is this is 1979. This is not 1974 with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot stuff. Getting that ending. I'm saying that would not age well. Just having another downbeat, you know, in this book, there's a clear arc. We're after Rocky. Rocky comes out in 1976, and that kills the, the cynical hmm. down, downbeat ending, for better or for worse. Right. But I'm, I, to me, the harder and more compelling thing to do is to leave some ambiguity, which Schrader says is crucial to a good ending. Um, but also do something that hasn't been done to death. And in the 70s, by the end of the 70s, the senseless death ending, that is not the, that is not the, the masterpiece solution to this complicated um, film. And I'm just saying this, this movie, Tarantino has rightfully um, recognized, has a super strong premise. And seeing George C. Scott 
have to tear down walls yeah. and flip out in all these porn establishments right before they get torn down is amazing. I mean, those are to me, that is the beautiful part of this movie. Once the Jack Nietzsche uh, score really gets going and stuff, I mean, it's undeniable, I feel like, the power of that. And I the guess the score is so unusual. Um, it really is. It's a hybrid between electronic you know music synthesizers drum beats and then it effectively like disoriented me and 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 also compelled you know like propelled me through the the setting definitely lost masterpiece score yeah i mean yeah really cool really interesting um wish it was officially released Just seeing her in the initial loop, like, uh, you know, the initial sex scene is, is enough to make his nightmare come true. So I, I, I guess I agree that it's, it is a nightmare scenario unfolding, um, but also a pretty like accurate portrayal of, of what he's seeing. Like, it's not exaggerating what he's seeing. He's not exaggerating it. It it just is that bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but, uh, it's it's the most exaggerated version of what a character it's could be going cinematically through. exaggerated. Yeah. yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's a movie, right? It's, it, it, the this lighting, is not a documentary. Yeah. It, yeah. it is a cinematic, and he's and Schrader is. It knows that he's got George C. Scott, who's like you said in the preview episode. He's just basically a symbol of moderation. You uh-huh. know, he is the most square jawed. You know, a fatherly, paternal figure you could possibly have in this, and the whole fun of this movie, you know, is just taking him on a roller coaster through hell. Well, that's not true, uh, Mister Jim Slum. Sometimes they call me Jism Jim. Yeah, that's not true, Jim. Oh, as a matter of fact, I think you're very close to the type we've been looking for. Oh yeah. Well, uh, I've done a lot of good work, you know, uh, uh, shorts, features, no major roles yet, it's true, but uh, it's all been really good stuff. That's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, I've seen some of your stuff. I like your looks. It is fun. Like Tarantino highlights, he says the best scene in the movie is when he holds auditions for a hardcore film. And, the mustache and, scene. Yeah, puts on a mustache and a wig and is basically trying to have guys come in so that he can ID the person that he saw um, in a film with his daughter. And eventually he does ID that guy. He says something, you know, callous about his interaction with his daughter, which Tarantino uses as more proof that the daughter was kind of like aggressive in the scene with this guy. That's what the guy relays to George C. Scott. And, the, you know, and then, the, and then George C. Scott assaults him, you know. Right. Because he lashes out. I think there, there's only a few clues like that, and you've seen the movie more than me, that really support, that make it definitive that she is... It took me a long time to arrive at the conclusion that she was probably just running away from home and, and finding some... And actually wanted to be doing this versus, you know, like she just kind of got <laughs> stuck in it. I, I, I don't know. Like I didn't find it nearly as definitive that she was choosing this life, but it's certainly amb- ambiguous in, a, in an effective way. That's the central question that gets us through 
all the way to the end of the movie. And I, I disagree that it, the movie kind of with Tarantino, that it sort of loses momentum after uh-huh. that point. Um, you know, it's, is she just being rebellious or is she justifiably running away from George C. Scott's conservative? Is he a conservative dickhead or is she just being a teenager? Yeah. That's what we're trying to suss out. And once you get to that scene, which I do agree is the pinnacle, that's when George C. Scott sins. So it's, it's the nightmare world has turned him into the thing he hates most. It's not that he is um, uh, going out and being a hooker or something, but he is hurting people physically. He's, yeah. he's damaging his own self-worth um, uh, in order to try to do the right thing. I mean, I, I guess, I don't know that it really matters because we have such a limited point of view on, on her character that I think all the ambiguity is, is uh, intentional just by not showing her and, and focusing. I, I really like her. I don't know. How, what was your well, uh, op- I, I opinion I, on Aliyah Davis's performance? Um, I didn't have a strong opinion. I guess it was uh, hard not to, you know, be colored by Tarantino's um, reaction, and and he thought she was trash um, as and a performer, he, right? And, and and well, he really thinks that the way that the producers forced Schrader to change the movie, yeah, required more out of Elijah Deus than she was hired to but do. But she was an. Uh, it was a really interesting revelation that they just hired an adult film actress because and, that's that's all that it was going to be i mean they needed someone who was going to be comfortable doing those scenes and that was the only job requirement not right. acting and for me i'm getting a little bit of this jan michael vincent vibe where there's just a naturalism uh uncalculatedness to her performance that on the rewatch value now she seems real she seems like a real frightened little daughter person who's just upset her mom left her dad she, yeah. she is confused and um, doesn't know what the right thing to do. And I think her performance conveys that enough that a character study of uh, George C. Scott is supposed to, you know, that's the objective of the movie is a character study on George C. Scott. Yes. And so she doesn't need to do an Oscar winning performance here, but she conveys that, char- that ambiguity of we don't really know if she um, has conviction or not, right? you know? And I, that's all I need from her to do. And, you know, the way that she says at the end, she has one big line at the end where I didn't fit into your goddamned world, cocksucker. Yeah. And then, <laughs> you know, that, you know, in the way she swears uh-huh. is convincing to me of a teenager. You know, it's just like in Toby Hooper's The Fun House when the uh, teenager tells somebody to fuck up. You know, nobody yeah. says that and nobody, <laughs> yeah. nobody swears like that. And she does, but she doesn't do it in a way that made my eyes roll. Sure. Every time I watch it, it's not like that. But I think that you on the first watch hit upon something that it took me many watches to do, which is that you think the movie is ending in this way. That's just a happy ending. She goes home to daddy, but really there's deep problems within his society, his culture within the society that she ran away to. There's no answers here. There's no solutions here. Yeah. These problems are going to persist and manifest in different ways. Yeah, and, and that's, I, I haven't really spit out the question I've been trying to ask effectively because yeah. that's, 
I'm trying to decide if it's a stronger movie. No, I don't think she should die off screen in in a car crash. Senseless I, death. Yeah, I didn't even really know that was a trope, but I just feel like that's anticlimactic. I do feel like the decision is, does she display agency at the end and and not go home with him versus go home with him, but then we have to project into the future that she still has to reckon with this kind of, you know, rebellious, uh, her, her needs and her need to escape this conservative structure. Maybe her first escape attempt was probably um, a little in over her head <laughs> and she could start with, you know, like move into a, 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 you know, another, another community and, and, and making out on her own. Um, she doesn't need to go straight into hardcore porn. Uh, but cause I just, I guess what the question I'm dancing around is yeah. I didn't I wasn't convinced that she was getting anything out of this um this um uh, time spent her new her new life in California in porn. I wasn't She's convinced with people who love her now. <laughs> That's what she says. Yeah. I, I was maybe I was a little like um um predisposed to assume yeah. that she was being manipulated and she's young and vulnerable and and maybe I was projecting some morality on it. I don't think the movie really gave us any much indication that she was in control of her uh, destiny in this scenario. But maybe that doesn't really matter. I I I, yeah. I, I don't know. I I I think that it's a character study of George C. Scott, yeah. not her. So we don't get to dwell on her decisions. But I do agree with Tarantino that there are problems with this movie, that it's not a complete and utter masterpiece. And I really think that after multiple viewings, just like with Big Wednesday, it's too hard to peel this onion. Hmm. This is coming from the Hemingway, John Milius tradition where everything is super weighted. And that works amazing in the exposition. That does wonders on the rewatch with the exposition. Every tiny little thing is just so interesting and nuanced and comes back to bite you in the ass at the end of the movie. All men, through original sin, are totally evil and incapable of good. All my works are as filthy rags in the sight of the Lord. That's what the Venusians call negative moral attitudes. Well, be that as it may, you uh, stands for unconditional election. God has chosen a certain number of people to be saved, the elect, and he's chosen them from the beginning of time. It's not with whether she dies or not. It's with the last shot. Because hmm. you need to cut, tell the audience here that everything really isn't okay. That, that's, and yeah. he could have done that in a way that made the producers happy and didn't, they didn't even know he was doing it. He could have right. subverted that, but he just gave up and he didn't even think about it. And he just did what they wanted to. So I totally blame Schrader for the ending not being as good as it could be, but I still get that after I peel the onion. I'm still able to peel the onion, but I've just seen it a bunch of times. But it, it is interesting that Schrader does seem very uh, conflicted, or you know, he basically dislikes this version of his own film. Um, yeah, at least he, that's want, the, he wants the senseless death. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so he was more reacting to just wanting to stick to that very 
kind just of, like taxi driver he wants to yeah. do taxi driver again yeah yeah so i mean he's a cynical filmmaker there's no there's no denying that the characters that are portrayed don't usually the the trick that he is pulling off over and over again is using the language of cinema and the um stylizing very off-putting anti-heroic characters and forcing us to live with them so that we're not rooting for them, but we're seeing, we're empathizing and we're seeing their perspective Yeah. only yeah. to punish us or them or both. And in this, we don't get punished the way that we might otherwise. Unless he ended it a little differently yeah. with that final shot. Um, you know, but it's not a genre movie. So Tarantino says um, he can't write genre movies. And it's just, uh, no, this is a character study, yeah. just like Taxi Driver. A blue collar has elements of that too. It's a veiled uh, character study, maybe in some ways, because it's also a neo noir. Um, he's, you know, the search, the journey is why we're here. Um, but uh, you know, so there's a lot I disagree, basically, with Tarantino's assessment of it. But where I totally agree with Tarantino's assessment is that the first half is stronger, uh-huh. um, which doesn't make me hold the second half against it. It's just like Deliverance. I totally agree. First half is stronger. But I, I, that's the I case lo- with a lot of movies. Yeah, I like, yeah. and I, and I, that doesn't. I still love the movie, even though I think the first half is stronger. I will say, or with the point I was going to make is just that forcing the dad watching that film, it was like that's one of the most nightmarish scenarios that you see play out. Like he could show him a clip, he could show or show him a still, he could just prove at any point that that's that his daughter's in it, but having to watch George C. Scott watch the whole, the whole thing and, and cry and scream and just like, it's, it is a nightmare. That's when the nightmare really, really like first starts. And in some ways, you know, like Tarantino says, he's just looking for somebody to punish. Yeah. It's because of that, you know, in some ways we're just watching George C. Scott get mortally stabbed in, in the Midwestern yeah. heart. And then he just goes on a rampage. Um, in the porn world, trying to find somebody he can bite into. Yeah, it wasn't. I guess the only point I was making it wasn't the most delicate way to break him the news. It right. was the most <laughs> in-your-face, extreme way. Yep. And again, yeah. this is just making me like Midwest nightmare. Yep. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah. But I just want to say about the whole snuff film thing. Mm-hmm. This is a little tangential, but whether it's real or not or accurate enough. Having that scene at the end where he's bursting yeah. through the paper walls and the different sets, it's all worth it for that to yeah. me. That is just an awesome sequence and set piece. Yeah, and seeing him, George C. Scott, subtly become a little more comfortable and confident in going up and approaching the uh, madams or whoever's like working at the desk of these establishments, desk is a strong word. They but, offer nude body to body content. Yeah, it's like we 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 are starting that is where you're in his POV and you're like, okay, the next time he goes into a place, he's going to be a little more familiar with the lingo and and he's going to be able to accelerate this interaction because he knows he's not just blindsided by it. And then yeah, as it gets worse and worse, he is also getting more and more angry and and unhinged. And yeah, it just ramps up the the dramatic, you know, Conclu- uh, climax of the film because it's a movie it's a nightmare it's yeah it's not going to end with a whimper and it takes you on an emotional roller coaster 
and at the same time has some really fun parts of it. Like Lenny Gaines, he's the porn producer guy. He's in Scorsese movies and stuff, you know, and when he and, and, uh, you know, uh, Van Dorn goes to have the meeting with him and he's like, so why do you want to make porn and stuff? And he's like, well, even rivets get boring after a little while. I mean, that's a great line. Rivets get boring. Come on. (laughs) And it's just, you know, that's my right man. You're right? Right. You know, it's just, it's just a great little bit that Lenny Gaines has in that. The other thing that's really going on in this movie um, is the, the, all the stuff with Season Humbly, who is married to Kurt Russell at the time. Ah. So she, you know, on the rewatch, especially this screening, everybody reacted so well. I mean, she really brought the movie up. She's a Venusian. You know, it's just, it's great. And it, it takes you from all of this uh, stuff that could become two-dimensional if you played it for 90 minutes. You know, the right. movie isn't just about him doing a rampage and getting revenge for having to watch his daughter in a sex tape. It is also about George C. Scott having to confront this other world and talk about his beliefs with them. So him opening up and sharing that and stuff. And I love the part where, um, she is like um, talking with him and he goes, um, well, it makes sense if you see it from the inside. And she says, well, anything makes sense if you see it from the inside. You should hear the way perverts talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that is, that's gold. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it, it shows how limited his perspective has been up to this point. And that's just one of the very few glimpses we get that he is willing to like open himself up to another perspective i mean so they don't overdo it in my opinion like she is kind of um maybe an unrealistic prostitute with a heart of gold type trope borderline to that type of trope but like i don't think they i I don't think they overdo it she's not like he doesn't experience radical transformation because he meets her he just shows maybe a few cracks in the the armor of his you know his conservatism. Absolutely. And, you know, another point that I thought was really interesting was uh, Van Dorn and his quest to find her. Um, Tarantino talks about how, you know, he just wants him to go home. You know, when you find out um, that his daughter was doing this, just go home. We all just want him to go home. And when I'm watching it, no, I just want him to find the daughter yeah there's no go home you know so i just thought it was really interesting that he he had that reading because oh that's crazy nobody would would actually be satisfied i mean maybe they wouldn't think that they were the right they were the sole person that could find her that's a little arrogant but like i mean aside from the (laughs) the uh, pi that that he hires like but yeah he's not just gonna like go home and forget it like or have any have he didn't have any evidence that it's resolved in any meaningful way. Yeah. Like, it just felt like a strange chapter because yeah. just felt like he was like being like, yeah, I just learned that Paul Schrader didn't like the ending of this movie. And now I'm watching it and I see how bad that ending is. And there's all these problems with this movie. Yeah. And like it do- work and his way and back. it's not accurate. And it's just like, uh, whoa, this movie is a movie and it's also, it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's Straw Dog. It's this nightmare thing and, and it's not about um, that. And also just the fact that he, he agrees with Schrader that the senseless death ending would be the better ending because we talked about this in the big we- uh, Wednesday. You know, there's two generations in, of filmmakers 
sort of coming to to of age in the 70s we have the hippie anti-establishment directors they're the guys with the downbeat cynical endings and then we have the movie brats and they're they're the guys without those they're the big blockbuster they're the happy ending guys and schrader is he's in the middle but he's really on scorsese he's a movie brat yeah he's a fan of the searchers that we're seeing here he's a fan of john ford and stuff so for him to do the downbeat ending i just feel like that's not true to form he did that in taxi driver scorsese did that they got that out of their system in the mid 70s now we're in the late 70s times are changing and it just it, to me it just would have felt super trite and i'm just surprised that tarantino is just campaigning for senseless death endlessly well yeah and there's no way he would ever make a movie with such a kind of cynical anticlimactic ending his movies are all major like wish fulfillment or revisionist wish fulfillment for the characters in the context of the genre they're in the historical period they're in right they're going to get a very satisfying like ridiculously satisfying conclusion to their their mission right and that's my beef and as i said before is that schrader kind of gives up even though he knows he has to satisfy people he should have known that, oh, you can, you can still do something interesting with that and shown that really the problems aren't actually solved. Yeah, that's the, so I think we're in agreement that that's like the biggest missed opportunity would be, this is a middle road ending versus kind of taking a stance in, in one direction or the other, or I guess arguably it's middle road by the stances. We don't really get any evidence that it wants you to to evaluate, like interrogate their their relationship after this, we just get like to breathe the sigh of relief that she's home, and um, we don't have to think about what happens after that. And honestly, it's just like the end of the day. Do I really care? No, it's because I got that slow burn entrance. I got that holiday feel, and then we slow burn into George C. Scott driving around this that porn strip in san diego with the jack nietzsche score and then he goes in and he looks at all the dildos and neil (laughs) young's helpless is playing that to me (laughs) is the beauty of this movie it's not whether Elia davis had enough gumption to uh do those lines with the cocksucker at the end right that's small potatoes throwing shadows on our eyes leave us So this time I thought I'd do something a little different where I'd bring some physical media. Um, and I, I, one reason I was just um, spurred to do this is because I couldn't find any box office numbers. Hmm. So just like with the Boogeyman, when we talked about it last time, there's, you know, the Boogeyman, we kind of guesstimate made $25 million, but nobody really knows. It's because they didn't report the numbers. Why didn't they report the numbers? Because they stole the money. Right. You know, I got this, Detroit on the line. Actually, it made 500000 out of it. No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and this is made by Columbia, uh-huh. big studio, and I couldn't find the numbers. So I don't know if there's some reason why it's not on a lot of the box office websites or Wikipedia or anything, but that is interesting because yes. most movies I can find the numbers. Okay, a little conspiracy perhaps. So when I... Um, I was in college. I was in a record store, 
and I came upon this laser disc. And I don't know if you've seen many laser discs or, or played around with them or <laughs> watched a laser disc before, but I just wanted to pull this out because this is the original laser disc that came out in the 80s. It's in pretty good shape. Yeah. Um, and it's got the same cover that came out with the VHS. And that's very different than uh, the one sheet. And I don't know, when you came to see it, did you see the poster I had? I did. Yeah, yeah. so it's got that famous poster with, oh my God, that's my daughter right. and stuff. So they decided not to put that on. <laughs> they toned it down. Columbia probably was um, uh, RCA, Columbia, uh, put out this disc, and it was um, probably them who wanted to tone it down a little bit. Um, uh, so it, Ooh, but, it smell, I can, I, <laughs> yeah. I can smell the fresh like um, um, packaging from the laser laser disc. It's yeah, exciting. And, um, so it got a laser disc and a VHS in the eighties. It got a nineties VHS. It got a shitty DVD in two thousand four. It got a Twilight Time uh, Blu-ray in twenty sixteen. It got an Indicator Blu-ray, I think, in twenty nineteen, and then in twenty twenty three, we got this guy. From Kino Lorber, mm. which is a really nice Blu-ray, nice slip cover. Um, it's got similar vibe on mm. the slip cover to that. But then we finally get somebody ballsy enough to re, uh, put the one sheet out for. Uh, oh my God, that's my daughter on the cover. So finally in 2023, um, I actually haven't seen the Indicator uh, Blu-ray, but that's an Australian label. Um, so this is in America, and I highly, I think this is the definitive way to, to see this movie now. Um, and it, it doesn't have a lot of special features. It's got uh, just the commentary from Schrader and a film historian and then the trailer. So I think there's room for somebody to put out um, some more special features on this guy because this, this, this is an onion. You can peel this guy. Yeah, so I just want to say, I mean, yeah, this is a beautiful Laserdisc copy. We've talked about this before probably. It's unfortunate that the Laserdisc format was ahead of its time in terms of like yeah. the quality of Laserdiscs. It doesn't always match the beauty of of the packaging, but yeah, it's so cool to be able to hold um, an artifact that's as large as a vinyl record and see the cover art at a reasonable size. See George C. Scott, you know, clutching his head and 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 get a glimpse of kind of the the landscape of the movie or the setting of the movie. Um, and then same for the, for the Blu-ray. It's nice that they get to have it both ways. The slip cover shows him almost at his most uh, composed and cool um, uh, kind of uh, state. And then you don't see the, the clutching his, his hand, his head and the, the tagline until you take off the slip cover. So that's very evocative of the journey that we're on, obviously. Yeah. yeah, that's him with his glasses. I guess he couldn't see at all without his glasses. Hmm. And one thing we didn't talk about is just George C. Scott was super depressed when they were making this movie and was on just a complete bender. He oh. was drunk like most of the time. And I guess when he got drunk, he took off his clothes. So he would just go to bars and they would just have a stack of his clothes on the bar. Uh -huh. um, and he would just be hammered and just furious. Um, and so famously, uh, he would not complete principal photography for this movie until Paul Schrader promised George C. Scott that he would never direct another movie. <laughs> and of course, Schrader went on to make American Gigolo and yeah. many other movies um, at, right after. And so he lied to George C. Scott um, in order to convince him to do this. But 
uh, yeah, I guess George C. Scott had a lot of failures um, in his directing pursuits um, and was just not in a good way. So yeah. that is definitely part of his performance there, the distraught. Yeah, well, it, it, I know his character is so buttoned up and you assume he has like, he needs some kind of outlet to to express all this all these repressed emotions but we don't see that in the movie aside from you know when he assaults the actor and i guess we see it in his rage but for the most part he he actually doesn't drink he's completely sober in the movie which is his character is so that's uh you can sense that there's more beneath the surface obviously and and so that off-screen drama kind of seems compatible um for better or worse with this performance i mean better it's it's never great if a performer has to rely on their personal demons i don't think it's never a great work environment but it can certainly add some perspective to the the eventual art that comes out of it yeah it'll be really interesting to see how this movie ages because it is very available like i'm saying it's physically available i'm i'm no doubt that it is streaming there's very big names involved here, and it's interesting enough that Tarant- someone like Tarantino is going to put a high-profile chapter on it. Yeah. So this is going to live on, and it's going to debate, and I think that some of the um, problems with Tarantino's assessment are so apparent. This is I don't feel like I'm a mad scientist here for uncovering some of the things that I disagree with him. So I think it's, there's a lot of room for debate. And I, I think that uh, those are the movies that tend to uh, have lasting, long-lasting power. Yeah, I mean, did you know many people in your life um, leading up to the screening that had strong opinions on on the movie? How I, I guess another way. To I have, was yeah. I was under the impression that everybody thought it was a cult classic. Okay. So I I and that's why I, I think I'm coming to the defense a little bit on hardcore here because um, it's coming into a high profile with this book. Right. Um, and Tarantino's picking some bones that don't really make sense to me. Um, and I, I really love this movie and, um, there's a 4k DCP of it. So it was just, it was really special to pick this November to get to play it, um, in context with some of the other film noirs. Yeah. Well, there's no bad publicity. No, the, the book, if it shines a new light on it from, from that perspective, it certainly gave me interesting, additional context tarantino isn't afraid to have a provocative dissenting opinion he's such a powerful voice in in uh, opinionated filmmaker that it's not surprising that he has kind of a, a counter take um i just wonder before that before he expressed his opinion yeah uh, that's why i was curious what the kind of the film nerd consensus was before that. And if it was just kind of a a little bit of a hidden cult classic from a very respected filmmaker, that's, that's interesting. This will just give another, some more, some more heat to that discussion. Yeah. I feel like it's a more well-loved than, um, blue collar. So that's Freighter's first movie that he directs right before it. And I really like that movie as well. Hopefully I get to play that, but I'd say that after taxi driver, um, maybe Rolling Thunder is a little bit more, but the, people don't associate that with Schrader like they do with this. Yeah. So this is purely of Schrader, and I think this has, you know, it's kind of right after Taxi Driver. Excellent. Well, it was certainly the 
best possible way for me to kick off my Christmas movie <laughs> viewing that I could have that I could have hoped for. So, um, well, we're leaving the seventies now officially yeah. in December with the far country. So we're going into the fifties in the deep cut series, a decade I haven't done anything with. Um, and it's going to have a lot more parameters from the production code that was going on there. So we're, I wanted to get a nice edgy one in there yeah. before we delved deep into the golden age of Westerns. I know that wasn't easy for you, um, to move out of the seventies yep. and challenge yourself. So you're experiencing some, some growth. As well. Well, I don't, we're oh. not, we might not be back in the, oh, wait, no, January is back in the 70s. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, a little sojourn into the, the 50s will be good for everyone. But yeah, um, I think that's it for this episode. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, all the podcast platforms. You can subscribe. If you are looking or telling someone about the podcast, you can just search Academy Revival Podcast and um and then subscribe so thank you doorman thanks everyone who helps program at academy and uh that's it for now thanks for listening everyone <laughs>